Hey everyone, Andrew here. I'm so glad to be with you today. We are in week two of this little mini series called God Has a Name. And we've actually pulled this from a book by John Mark Comer called God Has a Name. And it's actually one of the best books that I've read recently on God's character and his nature. It's a book that's easily accessible. It's not too academic, um, but it's a great read. It's super well written. And the reason we're doing this little kind of uh, jaunt, I guess, if you will, in our series on Matthew is we've been walking up toward the Sermon on the Mount. So we've gone all the way from Matthew 1 to 4. But as we approach the Sermon on the Mount, I've been convinced of something, and that's that If we don't understand God's nature and character the way that Jesus did, the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus' teaching will be a load that is too heavy for us to bear and to carry. It's actually impossible. It's exhausting. It's demoralizing. So we actually need to see God the same way that Jesus did. And we've been seeing Matthew paint this picture of God in his gospel so far. And Matthew's giving us this amazing image of God's sovereignty, of God's character and his nature. He's been giving us hints along the way, but we thought we would just take a pause and talk about one of the most Actually, this Exodus 34 uh, verses 5 to 7 are the most quoted verses of Scripture by Scripture. So these verses where God is describing himself to Moses are the most quoted Scripture in Scripture. And so uh, it's important for us, if we're going to get a glimpse of God, to actually go right to the source, and hear from God himself uh, how he describes himself. And so uh, why don't you turn with me to Exodus 34, 5, and 7, and we're just going to read this again, and then we're going to move into this next line. Pastor Brenda last week talked about uh, the first line, uh, Yahweh the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy, and I'm going to follow up with the next statement that God makes about himself. But let's read this, Exodus 34, 5 to 7. Then the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him. It's talking about Moses. Remember, Moses has asked God, God, would you show me your glory? Would you reveal yourself to me? God, I want to see your face. And God says, all right, Moses, you can't see my face. Nobody can. <laughs> it's too holy for you. But I'm going to hide you in the cleft, uh, the, the cleft of this rock, and I'm going to pass before you, and you can see me from the back. <laughs> and um, this is what happens. God does that. He hides Moses on this uh, cleft of rock on Mount Sinai. He passes before Moses, and as he's passing by Moses, this is what God is declaring of himself. God revealing his own name, God revealing his own nature and character. The Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him, and he called out his own name, Yahweh. Again, uh, this is lost in translation, but this is the proper name for God in Scripture. This is uh, the name that carries all of the attributes and the character that are essential to God. The Lord passed in front of Moses calling out. So he says, his name, Yahweh, is my name. And then he adds to that and says, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. That's what we covered last week. And remember, Pastor Brenda walked us through sort of the meanings of compassion and mercy. Compassion being a feeling word. It's actually the word that's used to describe Uh, a mother's womb and a child in their mother's womb, that God feels about us the same way a mother does as she is carrying her child in her womb, the same way a parent does as their child. God is filled with compassion towards us. He looks at his children in the same way and mercy. Remember, Pastor Brenda mentioned that mercy is an 
action word. Another word that you may see in your translation is gracious. And that is that God not only has compassion towards you, but he acts on it. He does things in your life and in my life that are consistent with his character. I want to remind you again that in Hebrew scripture, in the way that Hebrew scripture was written, the order of things is of extreme importance. The order that God lays out his character and his attributes are really, really important. What God wants to state as the most important, as the most essential character traits and attributes, his, the areas of his nature are the ones that he relates to Moses first. I'm a God who is full of compassion and graciousness or compassion and mercy above everything else. That's what God wants to reveal to Moses about himself. And you got to remember, Moses wasn't living in the 21st century, you know, modern Western world. Moses lived in the ancient Near East and he lived in a, a period of time where all around him and all of the nations around him in the nation of Egypt that he grew up in as an adopted son of Pharaoh, they worshiped many, many gods. They were very deeply spiritual um, people. They had a deep uh, sense of the spiritual realm. And of those many, many gods, almost all of them were angry, capricious, violent, demanding deities that struck fear in the hearts of those who served them. They were gods to be feared. They were gods who were intolerant and abusive and uh, dictatorial and overpowering. And yet God here, as he's revealing himself to Moses, paints himself into a different category and picture. And he says, I'm not like the gods you grew up with, Moses. I'm not, like, I'm not like the gods of Egypt, or I'm not like the gods of the nations around you. I'm not like Baal or Molech, or I'm not like these other gods. I am defined by compassion and mercy, graciousness. Those are the things that I want you to see first. A radical, radical different picture of God as he's painting uh, his nature and character on a canvas for Moses to see. He's giving Moses this radically different reshaping of who God is. And this was the God that Jesus was happy to walk in surrender and submission to. And I want to propose to you that we cannot walk in the obedience that Jesus did, in the surrender of his will and his, his life to God, if our view of God is distorted. The reason that Jesus could so deeply surrender his life and trust himself into the hands of God is because he knew above everything else that God was compassionate and gracious. That God viewed him the same way a mother does her child in the womb. And he views you that way too, and he views me that way. And then God continues on, he says, I'm slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. We're gonna talk about this one phrase, I am slow to anger. In the original language, uh, that's a composition of two words together, orek, being the word for slow, and a piam being the word for anger. And arek means to become long or to make long. And interestingly, a piam means nose or face. So uh, literally, in the original language, arek a piam means long of the nostrils. Long of the nose. And just, it sounds super funny and strange, but just remember with me or think with me for a minute. When you are in a situation that is 
bothering you, when your frustration, maybe with your kids or your spouse or your boss or coworkers, when, when things are starting to get under your skin and you're looking to actually settle things down for yourself, what do you do? You close your lips, you purse them, and you take a long, deep breath through your nose, right? Maybe like me, if you're like me, your eyes go wide and you do this. And it's like your way of saying, settle down, Andrew, take a deep breath, settle down. Well, that's actually the picture of what God is saying he is like. When God describes himself as slow to anger, it literally is that picture. I'm long in the nostrils. I'm taking a deep, long breath with you. I am taking a deep, long breath with what's happening in the world around you. So we can make God angry. There's, there's two sides to this coin. There's the good news that God is slow to anger. And then there's the bad news that God still actually does get angry. And we're gonna talk about that in a moment, but God is not quick tempered. God is not volatile or erratic or capricious. God is not uh, setting off on temper tantrums of frustration. God is not, uh, anger is not bubbling up and boiling over as a result of frustration for God, of a temper that's gone wrong or sideways. He's not prone to outbursts of anger at all. God is slow to anger. You know, I remember a few years ago when Eli was young, uh, I, I don't know what I was doing, but at, in the morning, I, uh, Rochelle had gone into his room, or maybe this was after a nap, I can't remember. Uh, she'd gone into his room, and I just heard her start to scream. And so I ran into this room, and, and into Eli's room, and she was like literally like seething with anger. So the long in the nostrils, that wasn't working for her in this moment. She's seething with anger, and she's talking like a mile a minute, and she's talking about his Thomas the train set and his diaper and all of this stuff. And I go through the doorway to Eli's room, and the smell of poop is just, it is thick, and the best word I can use to describe it is pungent. Yes, it's very descriptive, I know, but it's pungent. I go into the room and she's losing her mind, literally. I look around and I see that Eli has taken his diaper off and he has taken the poop in his diaper and applied it to the Thomas the train set, basically covered his train set in poop. Even worse than that, our carpet, I don't know why we did this with little kids, but our carpet is white. So it's smeared on the carpet in his room and Rochelle is losing her mind. I purse my lips and take a deep breath. I'm like, honey, you leave, let me take care of this. The problem though, with being long in the nostrils and taking that deep breath is specifically in this instance, you can't take a deep breath in your nose when it reeks so bad in the room, but I did anyway, and I got started on cleaning up. It was one of the most uh, horrific things I've ever had to do. But that picture there of closing your lips, taking a deep breath and saying, all right, I somehow I need to make it through this without losing my marbles. That's sort of like what it's describing. I, I don't do very well with that, honestly. Um, I, as a kid and as a youngster, I had a short temper and a fiery temper. It always came out playing board games when I would start losing. I was a horrible loser. I remember turning our tables over, not in a righteous way like Jesus at the temple, but literally like throwing the Monopoly game over and wrecking the whole game for my whole family because I was losing and they were ganging up on me. Or when we would play Risk, and especially in college when I would play Risk and my dorm mates 
would, uh, would gang up on me to wipe me out, I would lose my mind, literally. I was not long in the nostrils at all. I had a quick, sharp temper. And for some reason, the two sports that have drawn this out in me the most are tennis and golf. <laughs> you know, when I play tennis, I don't know why. I, I don't know what I'm thinking. I, I, I imagine myself to be literally like a Federer. The problem is, I had, like, I went to tennis camp in Georgia when I was like 10. I, and, and that's it. I've hardly played over the years, but the moment I pick up a tennis racket, I feel like I should be really, really good. And then I get really, really angry very, very quickly when I'm playing and things aren't going well. It's so bad. I, I actually remember one of the last competitive, competitive games I played with my cousins. And uh, I was losing, and I, I literally, I couldn't handle it. I threw my racket over the court, over the fence on the other side. Then I felt so stupid and ashamed. I walk over in, in shame, and I go get my racket, and I'm like, all right, I'm going to be cool. I'm going to be cool. Five minutes later, ten minutes later, I'm not playing well. What do I do? I smash my racket down. Not slow to anger. Golf, the same way. Why do I think that I should be like Tiger Woods? Well, I have taken a few lessons, and I always remember the, the best shots of the rounds I've played and assume that I should be able to strike the ball so well like that every time. The problem is I can't, and I don't. And then I lose my temper, and clubs go flying. They go in the lake or they go around a tree. I'm just being super honest with you. I have no patience. Here's the problem. For most of us, we cast God in the image that most suits our view of life. If I'm totally honest with you, often in my life, I've assumed that God has a short temper like I do. I've assumed that when I'm angry about something or when I feel like, you know, something around me, something someone has done to me or said to me or something going on in the world, when I reach my boiling point, that God has reached his boiling point too. And it's not just me. I guarantee you, you do this too. We we see God, we, we uh, perceive him and his nature and his character through our own lens of how we operate and act. And if you're like me, you assume that God gets angry when you do. That his patience is about as long as yours is. And that when you've had it up to here, he's also had it up to here. But God is giving us a different picture. He gives Moses a different picture. Moses, I'm slow to anger. There's the good news and the bad news. The same phrase is used in Proverbs 14, 29. People with understanding control their anger. A hot temper shows great foolishness. Right here. <laughs> Proverbs 16, 32. Better to be patient than powerful, better to have self-control than conquer a city. So the good news is that God is slow to anger, but the bad news is that he still does get angry, but his anger is very different than our anger. God's anger is just and appropriate. God's anger is never coming out of uh, rage or an, uh, uh, an ability um, an inability to control himself. God's anger is not flowing out of frustration. His anger is not flowing out of impatience or intolerance. His anger is actually flowing out of his love. So God's anger is just and appropriate. Ours is wild and disproportionate. You know, um, much smarter people than I do know that anger is a secondary response. God's anger flows out of his love. Our anger is often shaped by our hurt or our frustration, by betrayal 
or bitterness or, or a desire for revenge, a desire for someone else to feel the pain back that they've caused us. The problem is that our anger is often, almost always disproportionate. When we've been hurt, then we want to see them suffer and pay, and not just the amount that we've received. We want them to pay double what they have, what they have perpetrated on us. We want them to hurt twice as bad than we do. And here's what's interesting. We look at, you know, back in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures, the law that God gave to Moses, where God laid out a justice system for them, and that justice system was an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, you know, like that, we look at that and go, man, that's extreme. An eye for an eye, you mean you're gonna gouge out somebody else's eye because of what they've done to you? You're gonna cut off somebody's hand who's stolen? You're gonna do stuff like that? We look at that and we go, that's crazy talk. That's insane. But here's what is true. That's actually way ahead of its time. That's actually a, a measured, just response. What God is saying is your response back to this person, your response of judgment needs to be proportionate, equally proportionate to the crime that's been committed. You can't go beyond that is what God is saying. And what's even doubly crazy is that in Moses' day, in the, the barbaric kind of cultures around Moses, they would take things to the extreme. If someone sinned against you, right, stole something from you, don't cut off, you know, just one of their fingers, cut off their hand and cut off their other one and make them a slave to you for life. So Moses uh, is outlining something that God is wanting to institute in Israel that is actually gracious and compassionate. It is just. But our view of justice, if we're honest, is to demand more retribution than the crime warrants. We want to make punishment of the offense clear. So we often, in our anger, demand more in the terms of justice than even God would. And we see, again, uh, probably the best example of God's being slow to anger is found in the Old Testament in the book of Jonah in terms of an Old Testament principle. I want you to turn to the book of Jonah with me. And we're gonna read some scripture here and just unpack this a bit. Jonah 1. One to three, the Lord gave this message to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. Announce my judgment against it because I have seen how wicked its people are. But Jonah got up and went in the opposite direction to get away from the Lord. He went down to the port of Joppa where he found a ship leaving Tarshish. He bought a ticket and went on board, hoping to escape from the Lord by sailing to Tarshish. So Nineveh, okay, just a, a quick geography and history lesson. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. Assyria was the arch enemy of Israel in Jonah's time. Assyria was known to be a brutal, violent, oppressive, and cruel place. Uh, you know, it's interesting, a few decades ago, archaeologists found a Ninevite library, and what they found in that library was mind-blowing. It was crazy. I'm just going to read to you a few things that help you to, to form the character of the Ninevites that, that Jonah knew about. So speaking of a city he just destroyed, King Shalmaneser II had this to say, a pyramid of heads I reared in front of his city. Their youths and their maidens I burnt up in the flames. So he made a giant pile of heads by the front gate and burned the women and children alive. His son, Sennacherib, we hear about him in Chronicles, had this to say about a king that he defeated. This is an Assyrian king talking about another king he de defeated. I flayed him. <laughs> His skin I spread upon the wall of the city. 
on the top 10 list of things you don't want to happen if you're an ancient king, all right? On the top 10 list of things you don't want happening is getting skinned alive by the Assyrians. One of Sennacherib's descendants, King Asherbernipal, also carried on this family tradition and writing about another king in another war, he said, I pierced his chin with my keen hand dagger. Through his jaw, I passed a rope, put a dog chain upon him and made him occupy a kennel. So the Assyrians were brutal, harsh oppressors. But Jonah isn't running away from the Assyrians. He's running away from God, and we're not sure why yet. Let's keep reading on further in Jonah 3. Then the Lord God spoke to Jonah a second time. So Jonah has run away, and he's gone to Tarshish, which was literally the furthest place on the map Jonah could find from Nineveh. Literally, the furthest place he could go. That's where he starts going. We, you probably know the story. He's in a boat. There's a huge storm. And uh, they think they're going to die. And Jonah says, throw me overboard. I know this is because I'm running away from God. This giant fish or a whale swallows Jonah. He's three days in the belly of this fish. Then the fish spits him up on dry land. Here's where we pick up the story. Then the Lord spoke to Jonah a second time. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh and deliver the message I've given you. This time Jonah obeyed the Lord's command and went to Nineveh, a city so large that it took three days to see in all. It's huge. On the day Jonah entered the city, he shouted to the crowds, 40 days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. So he's in the capital city of this brutal, oppressive uh, regime. And he's saying to them, in 40 days, this city will be destroyed. Now listen to this. The people of Nineveh believed God's message. And from the greatest to the least, they declared a fast and put on burlap to show their sorrow. When the king of Nineveh heard what Jonah was saying, he stepped down from his throne and took off his royal robes. Again, the picture of the, this king that would have been characterized as a, a brutal dictator, a brutal oppressive leader, steps down from his throne and took off his royal robes. He dressed himself in burlap and sat on a heap of ashes. Then the king and his nobles sent this decree throughout the city. This is how they respond to Jonah's message, his preaching for repentance. No one, not even the animals from your herds or flocks, may eat or drink anything at all. People and animals alike must wear garments of mourning and everyone must pray earnestly to God. They must turn from their evil ways and stop all their violence. Who can tell, perhaps even yet, God will change his mind and hold back his fierce anger from destroying us. When God saw what they had done and how they had put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind and did not carry out the destruction he had threatened. It continues on. This change of plans greatly upset Jonah. Okay, so here we go. Here's why we're beginning to see why Jonah was running from God. He wasn't afraid of the Assyrians. He's running from God. Jonah became very angry, so he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? <laughs> that is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you are a merciful and compassionate God. Okay, stop. Jonah is now quoting Exodus 34. He's now quoting back to God what God had said of himself to Moses. You are merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. Slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. Just kill me now, Jonah says. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. So we know now Jonah is running from God initially because he knows God is slow to anger. He knows he's gracious and compassionate. And Jonah knows, look, if these people turn back to God with their whole heart, if they repent and change directions, then God is going to have mercy on them. 
And I don't want that. These people have been hurting the Israelites. They've been oppressing them. I want them to suffer, God. I want your judgment to fall on them. I don't want them to experience your gracious, merciful blessing. I don't want you to be slow to anger in their life. And so Jonas, Jonas, not Jonas, Jonah is running from God because his picture of what the Assyrians deserve his idea of how God should act over their lives is different than he even knows the character of God to be. Again, we often view God through our own impatience. When we've had it up to here with things in life, we believe that God should have had it up to there as well. And we can't imagine how he could possibly withhold his anger any longer or his punishment from the people that have hurt us people that have violated us or lied to us or cheated on us or said horrible things about us, who have slandered us. We can't imagine, when we've had it up to here, we can't imagine how God could have any more compassion, any be any more slow to anger, have more patience. We want God to have had it when we've had it. And Jonah knows that that's not the nature and character of God. We can't understand, when we look at the world around us, why is God not acting in the way that I think he should? Why is he not bringing to justice the things that are so wrong and dysfunctional and evil in our world? The good news for some of you is that God is slow to anger. The good news for some of you is that you've been intentionally running your life with sin, you've been running from God, you've been choosing to uh, define your life by what you desire, how you want to live, and you've been, in some ways, even spitting in the face of God, and the good news for you is that he's slow to anger. Peter said that the reason God hasn't brought everything to justice is because he wants all to come to repentance. He wants all to turn to him. He wants no one to perish, but everyone to receive life. And here's the good news for some of you. It's not too late to right the ship. It's not too late to repent, as we've talked about in the series on Matthew so far. It's not too late. God is slow to anger. But God does get angry, and this is where we need to have some fear and trembling. Scripture talks about the wrath of God. That's sort of the technical term for God's anger over 600 times. God does get angry. I want to read a couple things. Psalm 7, arise, O Lord, in anger. Stand up against the fury of my enemies. Wake up, my God, and bring justice. Gather the nations before you. Rule over them from on high. The Lord judges the nations. Declare me righteous, O Lord, for I am innocent, O Most High. End the evil of those who are wicked and defend the righteous. For you look deep within the mind and heart, O righteous God. God is my shield, saving those whose hearts are true and right. God is an honest judge. He is angry with the wicked every day. If a person does not repent, God will sharpen his sword. He will bend and string his bow. He will prepare his deadly weapons and shoot his flaming arrows. Notice who the psalmist says God is angry toward. He's angry toward the wicked and evil. He's giving us time now to walk in repentance and to turn back to him, but he's still stringing his bow and sharpening his weapons. John 3, this is, uh, many of you have heard this a gazillion times, 316, this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. We all know that, but listen to what John continues with. God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. Great, love it, love it, God. There's no judgment against anyone who believes in him. Even better, keep it going. Ah, but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. And the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people loved the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. 
All who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it for fear their sins will be exposed. But those who do what is right come to the light so others can see that they are doing what God wants. Listen, God is love, and he did so love the world that he sent Jesus into it. But God will bring everything to judgment and justice one day. God is slow to anger. He's long in the nostrils, but God will and does get angry. So back to Nineveh. God relented. When they repented, God changed his mind. And that made Jonah really upset. But I want you to know this. Further on in the Old Testament, we have the book of Nahum. And Nahum is writing about 150 years after Jonah. And God uh, uh, is talking about Nineveh here. And he says this, This message concerning Nineveh came as a vision to Nahum, who lived in Elkosh, the Lord's anger against Nineveh. The Lord is a jealous God filled with vengeance and rage. He takes revenge on all who oppose him and continues to rage against his enemies. The, lo the Lord, so here he's quoting now again from Exodus 34. The Lord is slow to get angry, but his power is great. And he never lets the guilty go unpunished. He displays his power in the whirlwind and in the storm. The billowing clouds are dust beneath his feet. At his command, the oceans dry up and the rivers disappear. The lush pastures of Bashan and Carmel fade and the green forests of Lebanon wither. In his presence, the mountains quake and the hills melt away. The earth trembles and its people are destroyed. Who can stand before his fierce anger? So here's what's happening 150 years after Jonah. God is saying, look, I gave Nineveh a chance. They repented, I relented from my anger, but they've turned back to their old ways and now I've stored up, I'm, I'm at my point where I'm now about to act. I'm now about to release my wrath on these people. God's anger, okay, can be understood in a few categories, all right? So there's two sort of... Um, uh, there's two ways we can understand his anger is active and passive. We can see God's active anger, so these two different tenses of God's anger. His active anger, we can see this in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, where their sin is so egregious that God strikes the city down in, in a supernatural way with fire and brimstone. We see that in Genesis 18, 20, and 21. We see God's active anger in the story of Uzzah, who touched the ark of the Lord as the oxen stumbled. They were bringing the ark of the Lord back from Philistine captivity, back into Jerusalem. The oxen stumble. It looks like the ark of God is going to fall. Uh, Uzzah reaches out, touches it, and God strikes him dead. That's the active anger of God. That's 2 Samuel 6. And in the New Testament, this isn't just an Old Testament thing. In the New Testament, we see in the story of Ananias and Sapphira, God's active anger. They're in a church service, right? Uh, Ananias comes in and he says, hey, we sold a piece of land and here's all of the proceeds. I'm giving it to the Lord like everybody else. But the problem was he lied. He actually withheld some for himself and Peter says, you've lied to the Holy Spirit and God strikes Ananias dead right there. He dies. The people pick him up and take him out. An hour later, his wife Sapphira comes in and Peter says, hey, you sold that piece of property. Uh, what did you sell it for? And she gives Peter the same price Ananias had. And Peter says to her, how could you grieve and test the Holy Spirit in this way? And she falls down dead. God's Anger on them is active and it strikes them immediately. But here's what we need to know. God's active anger is the exception, not the rule. Most often we see the passive wrath of God and that's when God does not act specifically, but his inactivity, his non-acting is actually an act of his judgment. And we see this in Paul's writing in Romans 1. Verse 18, but God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because he's made it obvious to them. 
For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. Through everything God has made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yet they knew God, but would not worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. They formed God in their own image, in their own mind. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools, and instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. Romans 1.24, so God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshiped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. That is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men. And as a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. Since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them. Again, see this word. He abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do the things they should never be done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. They are backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. They invent new ways of sinning and they disobey their parents. They refuse to understand, break their promises, are heartless and have no mercy. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, yet they do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them too. So here's the language of God's passive anger or wrath. God abandoned them to do what they wanted to do. At a certain point, the wrath of God expressed in our lives is to say, fine, you want to do it your way. I'm going to let you do it your way. You want to continue to defy me. You want to continue to live for your own pleasure, for your own vision, for what you want in your life. I'm going to let you live your life the way you want to. And in that way, we come under the passive wrath of God. He gives us over to whatever our hearts desire. And so we see there that adultery then leads to divorce, that an addiction to pornography leads to bondage in our mind. We see the outworking of sin in our lives and we receive the fruit. God hands us over to what we've wanted in the first place. And this is God's passive wrath where he get, lets us have what we deserve because we want to live a certain way. And in the story of Nineveh, this is the passive wrath. It's actually the Babylonians that come and conquer Nineveh. It's not a, a supernatural act of God that destroys the city, but it's a conquering of Nineveh by Babylon. And that's a part of the wrath of God. You say, it's, is that really the wrath of God for, for me to experience the consequences of my own sin, to, to experience the fallout from getting what I want? Yeah, kind of. It's part of God's wrath. And it's actually far worse for us to be in the spot where God abandons us to just live the way we're determined to live. That is a terrifying place to be. But if you oppose God long enough, if you assert your will against him, his long enough, if you defy him long enough, if you um, are, are defiant and deliberately sinful long enough, finally, God will just say, look, all right, have it your way. Go ahead. But I'm going to withdraw my hand of covering and protection from you and you're gonna experience the consequences of your choices and your actions because you have been rejecting me and defying me blatantly and openly. And that's what happens when we also turn and call something righteous that God has called sin. When we live 
in clear, open, defiant sin, but call it righteous. Give the Bible a new standard and definition for what's sinful and not. God will say, fine, I'll give you over to that. I'll, I'll let you experience that. And that's the absolute worst for us. God's love doesn't negate his wrath and his anger. God's anger is not the opposite of his love. He actually works in wrath and anger in response to his love. It's actually indifference and apathy that's the opposite of love. It's when we just don't care anymore. God loved you and he loved me so much that he sent Jesus to show us a new way to live, a new way to enter into the kingdom. And we've seen in Matthew the entry point is repentance and confession and baptism, repentance, turning our lives around and going in a new direction, changing the way we think about our thinking and, and confession, actually bringing our lives into the light with God and with others and baptism being the symbol of dying to ourself, the call of Jesus and the call of the whole New Testament is to give your life away to Jesus to lay your life down, to take up your cross and deny yourself. The call of scripture is not to say, God, you love me so much that you'll let me do whatever I want, that, that you'll be happy when I'm emotionally happy, that you, your love means that I can just do whatever I want. That's not the gospel. The gospel is you die to yourself. You lay your life down for the sake of the kingdom. You surrender in humility before God and say, God, I, I'm going to receive a new way to live. His love doesn't negate his wrath. And his patience and love don't diminish his standard for living. We're going to see this in the Sermon on the Mount. Some of us have mistaken God's love. We say, well, God is love, so therefore he's going to approve of anything I want to do because that's what, how we've defined love in our modern generation. But we see in the Sermon on the Mount that God's love doesn't diminish the standard for living that he calls us to. Actually, Jesus raises the bar. When Jesus says things like, you know, uh, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say, even if you look at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Jesus is raising the bar in our life. Why? Because the love of God is worth it. Because God's gracious and compassionate and slow to anger nature are worth our whole and very lives. This is what James says. I want to leave you this in closing. Understand this, my dear brothers and sisters, you must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires, so get rid of all the filth and evil in your lives and humbly accept the word God has planted in your hearts, for it has the power to save your souls. He goes on in James 5 to say, dear brothers and sisters, be patient as you wait for the Lord's return. Consider the farmers who patiently wait for the rains in the fall and in the spring. They eagerly look for the valuable harvest to ripen. You too must be patient in our season of life, in COVID right now, under these restrictions, under what many of you consider to be unfair government intrusion into your life, unfair principles and things that are being told to you and dictated to you. Be patient. Take courage for the coming of the Lord is near. Don't grumble about each other, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. For look, the judge is standing at the door. God is slow to anger. When I've had it up to here, I cannot assume that God himself has had it up to here. He is slow to anger. He's long in the nostrils. So here's the question. Who are you impatient with today in your life? Who is who have you reached it up to here with? Who in your life, if you're honest, you're saying, God, I want them to experience justice and judgment, the pain and the hurt they've caused me, the, the suffering they've caused me. I want them to feel it. I want them to experience it. I want to encourage you with those people that come to mind, maybe even now, 
I want you to just turn and repent. Turn away, turn direction. Repent and turn direction and say, Father, forgive me for my impatience, for my unjust view of your anger. And I pray, Father, for your blessing, your compassion, and your mercy in their lives. Jesus, I trust you to bring justice when you see fit. I release these people into your hands. I release our government into your hands. I release the circumstances around me into your hands. And I ask for patience and endurance. How is your view of God's anger shaped your perception of the people and maybe the world around you? Are you looking for God to just smite people around you? Or like Jesus and Jonah, do you recognize that God is slow to anger? He's gracious and compassionate and slow to anger, and he's inviting you to trust him with that. He's inviting you to follow him in that, to actually, for those people that cause you the most difficulty, to pray for God's goodness and favor and blessing in their life, to forgive and release them. To entrust them into the perfect justice of God. Yes, he is angry and gets angry. He does, but he's slow to anger. Where do you need patience today. Let's just pray. Father, we just admit that it's hard for us to comprehend how gracious and compassionate and slow to anger you are. It's super hard. But Father, we pray that with these people that may even be coming to mind right now that have been such a source of pain or conflict or unforgiveness or bitterness, we pray, Father, that you would fill us with a new patience and grace and compassion and mercy, the kind of mercy that you have toward them, that you would even allow us to enter into the enemy love that Jesus talks about, where we would bless those who have hurt us and who persecute us, that we would pray blessing on those who have wronged us, where we would love our enemies because we see the lavish and great patience and mercy and compassion of God. May we see you, Father, for who you are and how you are in our world today. Amen.